So, uh, Luke 1, uh, we're going to look at verses 46 uh, to, I believe, 56. So, let's turn over there, and once you get it, let's stand up for the reading of God's good and right and holy word, all right? So, Luke 1, 46 through 56. Let's stand as we hear these words from Mary and from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth, for about three months, and then return home. You may have a seat. Well, I think it's safe to say that as Americans, we love a good old kind of rags-to-riches story. Uh, we love the stories of uh, things being flipped up and turned upside down from the, the way kind of the established system works, from the powerful and the greedy and the, the proud few being overturned by the very unlikeliest of people. One of my favorite stories of this is, uh, comes from a movie called Remember the Titans. All right, so if you remember Remember the Titans, the story behind that, we have a newly uh, desegregated school with an African-American coach uh, who takes the position of the head coach, who was a white coach, now is the assistant coach. They attempt to defeat all odds by not only being desegregated, um, but having a football team join together and to go on and try to actually have a winning season and win a championship. And throughout this movie, we see them overcoming all these different hurdles and obstacles where everybody thought that they were going to fail. Even the earlier times, we could see the, the foundations crumbling, and yet there is this success story coming out of failure. Success story coming out of, of little or nothing or impossible odds as it may seem. Something being made out of nothing or little. The weak and unstable ending up strong. The losers actually coming out on top as the winners. The unjust, proud, and corrupt system being proven wrong. That's what that story is all about. And really... This is what we're going to see in our text today as we look at Luke 1, 
and this reflection that Mary gives as she marvels at what God is doing. This morning we're going to see that because of God's great work, we are simply to glorify him. We're going to look at God's great work in specific in the life of Mary, but also in the general in the life of, of those uh, in the world. So first let's look at the, the specific work of the life of Mary, verses 46 through 49. We just read this, but I'll read it again just so that we can be on the same page. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things, and holy is his name. See, as we remember the Christmas story, part of the wonder of the Christmas story is how Jesus entered the world. A lot of times pastors point this out when we begin to, to start celebrating the Christmas uh, season. One would think that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords would enter more like a pop star or movie star on a red carpet, right? Pulling out all the stops, having every single thing possible to make it a special event like the rich and famous do. But to our surprise, and to many surprise, that's not what happens. Indeed, even for those who read the details of the Christmas story today, with fresh eyes, his entrance seems odd. It seems out of place. For a king, God being born of humble Jewish parents, Jewish parents who were peasants in a feeding trough in a rural town of Bethlehem, it seems like craziness. It doesn't make sense to us and to our thinking. Yet from the beginning of time, God's MO, his mode of operation is to do stuff just like this. He does things this way so that he can get the glory and the power and the might from these things. Using the weak and perfecting his power through our weakness. That's what he does. And we're going to see that as we study the text today. In the text that we had this morning, Mary marveled at that very thing. She recognized that she came from a humble estate that was nothing special in and of herself. She realized this. She was not nobility or royalty. She did not see herself to be fit as the, the mother of Jesus. And she's reflecting on this, that the, that the Savior of the world would be born from her. She's saying there's nothing special about me, and yet she says, I have the attitude of a servant. I am the Lord's. Whatever you want from me, here I am. It reminds me of, of something that I was taught to pray um, early on in my college years by a friend that was really investing in me. He taught me to pray anything, anytime, anywhere, with anyone. Here I am, Lord, send me. That was the attitude that Mary had. Here I am, Lord, send me. I am your servant. That's what she calls herself. Even as she reflects on the unlikely estate where the Savior of the Lord would be born. So there's a sense in which Mary is a model to us, a model of what God does through humble and weak servants. And those who realize that they're humble or they're weak and they don't have all the resources, that they're perfect candidates for the Lord's work, that he does great and wonderful things, things that are not possible in and of ourselves. 
when we admit that, God, we don't have anything left in the tanks, or, or I, I don't know if I can get up and do this this morning, not after the week that I just had. When we come to that place at the end of ourselves, that is where God shows up. That is where God shows his power and shows off his glory. It seems the opposite of what we think should happen. But then he doesn't do this for the proud, as we'll see in the rest of the text. So the question is, do you see yourself as a humble servant of the Lord? Do you see yourself as wanting to be humble, striving to be that by God's grace? And there's also a sense in which the the work and the life of Mary is a unique thing. After all, God chose her and not any one of us or anyone else in the history of the human race to be the mother of Jesus. What a privilege and honor it was for Mary. Mary recognized that. Mary had a hard time wrapping her head around this, that God would choose her out of everybody in the whole world. This has led some to an unbiblical elevation or lifting up of Mary to a place of honor that no other human being has reached. Some have called her sinless or without fault or failure, an immaculate conception. We realize that this is unbiblical, but still Mary's situation is unique. What a blessing it may have been, it was that she was the, or the, the, um, the mother of the Savior of the world. But she realized this. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She realizes that she herself needed the one that was coming from her. She realized that she was a sinner just like you and me. She was not sinless. But she needed a savior, and that savior was Jesus Christ. So we can recognize both really the uniqueness of Mary's role in the story of the Bible, but also how she also plays a role in being a model for us in that of humility. We can pray alongside of her and rejoice with her, saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. He is my savior. I rejoice in him because despite of my messed up estate, despite my lowly estate, he has done great things for me. We can pray that prayer. We can sing that song as it were. But as Mary continues to reflect on what the Lord has done and what he is going to continue to do through the birth of the Savior through her, she now turns to God's general work in the world, which takes up the rest of our text. I think verse 52 kind of captures the main point or the main punch of the last part of Mary's response. It says, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. See, God works in, in, uh, in mysterious ways sometimes. Amen. But he works among the proud in bringing them down off of their self-appointed thrones. What we see about how God works here is kind of the opposite of the way the world thinks it works. Verse 51 through 53 kind of shows us this. The world thinks that their prestige and power, or sorry, prestige and position equals power and might. But God says he brings down the mighty from their prestige and their position. 
The world thinks that their money equals power and might. But God says he sends them away, what? Empty-handed, verse 53. The world thinks that their numbers and their alliances and secret plans equal power. But what does God do? God scatters the proud in their secret plans. No one getting past God. See, several commentators have pointed out that Luke gives us some important insights on status or social standing. As we have seen, God uh, thinks some kind of way about the mighty and their thrones. The proud and their evil thoughts of their hearts, and so on. He doesn't give them props for their positions or achievements like the rest of the world, but what he does is to bring them low, to humble them, to scatter them, to bring them to destruction. I was in uh, my car recently with my kids, and they like to listen to this history CD. And the history CD goes through various... uh, parts of kind of world history, and we were listening to things about uh, leaders like Cyrus and Alexander the Great, talking about countries that rose and fell like Persia and Greece and Rome, and that in their search for greatness and glory, that they rose to great power, but each one of them fell. Each one of them are now gone, finished, barely remembered, scarcely referred to in the books of history. And yet they sought out for this greatness and in their pride, they thought that they were gods and kings of the earth. And what did God do to each of them? He brought them love. They are now just another sentence in a history book. History has taught this to us over and over again, that God opposes the proud. And yet really we refuse to learn that. God will not be mocked. He will not be outwitted. God will not be out-schemed or out-funded. He brings low or to nothing the proud and their unstable empires. That's our God. No well-funded terrorist group will stop him. No arrogant anti-Christian government will undermine him or slow his kingdom progress. No special interest group will ultimately thwart his kingdom initiatives. God will get his glory, and he will humble the proud. He will bring them to nothing. You know, one of the scriptures that came, or two of the scriptures that came to mind as I was thinking over this text is James 4, 6 and 2 Corinthians 12, 9. They say this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the one from 2 Corinthians, we read this earlier in our service, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And see, God, what he is doing in this text here, Mary's response, he is interweaving these two themes for us. This is a kingdom of opposites or reversals, and now it relates to the people of God. Let's see this in the text. Verse 50, God gives mercy to those who come to him in humble and reverent fear. Verse 52, God exalts or lifts up or puts in honor positions those of humble estate. Verse 53, to those who are hungry, God fills them with good things. And verse 54, 
Despite Israel's wickedness, its small size, its failings, God remembers his mercy and helps them. He remembers his promises. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He helps the weak and the powerless and those who feel like they've got nothing to offer and yet come to him with open hands. So we, like Mary, magnify the Lord even in our weakness, especially in our weakness. We see these themes all over Scripture. Let's think for a minute about some of them through the history of the Scriptures. God using, for example, a small, underage shepherd boy to defeat the giant Goliath. Amen. Think about God humbling the pride King Nebuchadnezzar so that he would act like an animal in the field until he was rid of his pride. God using the small lunch of a little boy to feed 5,000 who are hungry. What about God using an unimpressive ragtag group of disciples to turn the whole world upside down for Jesus? Or God humbling and then using an ex-killer and prosecutor or persecutor of the church to write a majority of the New Testament and to plant countless churches all over the world. Paul. It's a kingdom of opposites. Opposites of the way that the sinful world thinks the way things work. God's reminding us that if things don't work the way that our corporate executives think that it works. It's a kingdom of opposites. And we glorify God because of it. And notice also that the emphasis is not on what the person themselves can do, but what God does through them in their weakness, in their poverty, and in their inability. The whole point of this is not to make us look great or to make us look like we are the hero or the star of the show. Indeed, it's the exact opposite, that God would get all the glory, that he would be the star of the show, that his power would be perfected through our weakness. That's what the whole point of this is. That's why he shows his power in this way time and time again throughout the history of the Bible, throughout the history of the whole earth, throughout our lives today. That's what he does, and that's why he does it, so that he would be glorified. It's also pointed out to us in this 2 Corinthians 12 passage that just because God does great things through the weak and broken and under-resourced people doesn't mean we are going to stop being weak or stop experiencing hardships. Paul told us that he learned to be content with weakness and hardships and persecutions, illnesses. Those were his constant traveling companions. Um, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And 10, yeah. They were his constant traveling companions. See, a lot of times we think that God's just going to get us out of whatever it is that we're struggling with, and we're going to be done with it. And yet Paul says he learned to be content with those things. God's power is perfected through his weakness time and time again. Those were his constant traveling companions. But also remember that we said that there's a theology of status here reflected in Mary's uh, reflection here of God's work in her life. And it's also true of the humble servant of God. 
Think about this. Have you ever thought that God must care more about the rich and the prosperous, the healthy and the fit, because how it seems like he has blessed them? Sometimes we look at their lives from afar and we conclude that God must love them more. He must value them more. We ask the question, what have I done wrong? Listen to this quote from Daryl Bach. We tend to have a view that the rich and famous, or sorry, we tend to view the rich and famous as blessed and powerful, as somehow favored by the divine. Yet this text makes it clear that God honors the humble and poor. He sees them while we often ignore them. See, just because someone is rich or healthy or prosperous in their work doesn't mean they have a stamp of approval from God. Many times the opposite is the case. And as Mary reflects on this baby boy inside of her that will be the savior of the world, she praises God because he loves and values and cares for the poor, the lowly, the humble, the hungry. While the world ignores these people, God does not. God says that they are valuable, that they are lovely, that he cares for them. The question is, do we believe that this morning? The commentator, the one I just quoted, goes on and says, Many ministries go unsung that are committed to ministering in such context. It takes hard work. Such ministries lack the glamour of hanging out with the big hitters, but they please God. Well, good news for us here at New City Fellowship. You know, the world may look at our church and say, what can happen out of this ragtag group of people? What can happen? What can God do in this small little group? But God says that this ragtag group of misfits is exactly the people that he uses to turn the whole world upside down. Just like he's done time and time again. And that's what Mary's, uh, Mary's thoughts here remind us of as she reflects on that. That's what God does. That's his mode of operation. That God delights to do great things out of those who embrace their humility, their weakness, their limitedness, their inability to do the things that God wants them to do. And says, God, here am I. I am your servant. I've got nothing, but you've got everything. Be encouraged this morning. God has done great things. God continues to do great things through people like you and me when we realize that we have come to the end of ourselves. We began our time in Luke 2 this morning with a story of a ragtag high school football team who defeated all odds to do something great. It was a time where something that was weak and unstable and unpopular with many obstacles turned out to be successful and powerful and victorious. But we are reminded this Christmas season that there is a story so much greater than an underdog football team that we celebrate at Christmas time. A story that Mary surprisingly found herself in the middle of. A story of a baby boy born to two Jewish peasant parents in the rural town of Bethlehem. A story of a baby boy who would one day be the king of kings. 
a story about the one who was talked about for years and years as we sung about this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. As they waited for his arrival, a story of an unlikely Savior for an unlikely people. A story of a king and a kingdom who will have no end. And we're reminded this morning that that is the story that you and I are wrapped up in. That is the story that we celebrate at Christmas. It is why Mary's soul can magnify the Lord, and it is why our souls can magnify the Lord this morning. This story that you and I are a part of, that we celebrate here at Christmas time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you um, this morning, God, that you've reminded us through Luke chapter 1 of the way that you work. Lord, you do great things out of things that are nothing. You do great things out of weak people. You do great things out of people that feel and know that they are messed up, that they don't have anything left in the tanks, that they, according to the world, are not of any value. God, we thank you that you exalt the, the humble and that you bring low the proud. God, only you know our hearts this morning. Maybe some of us are, are the proud. We are the ones who think that we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We think that we have um, all the good in inside of ourselves. We think that we don't need you. God, I pray that if that's us this morning, that you would bring humility to recognize our own poverty and bankruptcy before you. That the only thing that we bring to the table is our own sin and failures and weaknesses. That we would experience the Savior of the world this Sunday morning. God, for those of us who are following you and know you, we pray that you would please help us to continue in an attitude of humility, to continue in an attitude of just humble service as your servants. God, that we would believe that you do great things, marvelous things, out of little. God, we pray that you would do that in our church. We pray that you would do that in our families, in our own personal lives. Pray that we would be encouraged by this text this morning. Perfect your power, Lord, in our weakness. And Lord, we pray that you would get all the glory, honor, and praise. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.